This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. You do better, I do better. You can say whatever you want about someone's path uh, to come to this country. You can say whatever you want about the fact that they have papers or don't have papers, but they're living amongst us. They're our community members. And if they're not safe and healthy, we're not safe and healthy, period. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer Podcast, coming to you from lovely Tacoma, Washington. It feels good to be home, y'all. Uh, my guest today is the new Washington State Senator, representing 27th District. So she is my senator, Yasmin Trudeau. So Yasmin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate that. I'm really excited to be here. No, I'm super excited to have you too. Like I, I believe in the power of local government and you are somebody who I'm excited to have in this seat. Like it's going to be awesome. Uh, one of the pillars of this show is that local government is important and is a means to move policy uh, that is stagnant at the local level or stagnant at the national level. And so in this conversation, I kind of want to hear about your legislative agenda for this term and like the things that you're excited about. But also like this is kind of an opportunity for you to introduce yourself to a lot of constituents. And so uh, what what motivated you to seek the appointment to the seat? Yeah, I mean, I, I love this community. Um, it's a community that's given a lot to me over the years, especially when I had nothing and nowhere to go. Um, so the opportunity to rep- represent this community in particular was really special to me. I actually had never thought about um, seeking elected office. And I think, you know, we've had the same representation here uh, for a long time. So it was kind of like, whoa, this is this is a, a chance. Right. And um, I had a couple conversations with friends and family and they were really encouraging. And I was like, OK, well, I'm going to shoot my shot to to give back to the you know, to the area and to the people that gave so much to me. Awesome. And so you've now been appointed to this seat. And so for folks who aren't following this super, super well, uh, I want to make sure I have this right. You are going to serve one year, the year that remains on Senator Daniel's term. And then there is going to be a election, a special election in November. And then at that point, then you will have the opportunity to run to maintain the seat. It's a, it's a safe blue district. And so I imagine that like, unless, well, actually, hold on. Let's hold off to that. I'll talk about that at the end. Let's, let's, let's hold off on that. Um, Let's, let's go here instead. So you are going into your first term in the state legislature. Uh, How does that feel? Well, I mean, I, I feel grateful that I'm at least used to the sort of environment and the pace of a legislative session. I don't, you know, as yeah. my previous role was as legislative director to our attorney general. Um, and then before that, I worked as as caucus staff and um, was a legislative assistant. So I'm, I'm familiar with that, which I think is a huge advantage. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to come in and just in a short session be expected to like all of a sudden carry bills. I have to tell you, it's quite different. Um, to be on the elected side of things, mostly because I just, I'm, I'm not so comfortable with pomp and circumstance. Um, and frankly, there's a lot of that in the Senate and it's, that's the part that I'm like, whoa, okay. Um, this is a little bit different and being in a caucus room and hearing people in full confidentiality express things is also, also quite different navigating that as opposed to, you know, grabbing people on issues in the hallway and, and advocating in committee. Very, very different. Yeah. 
And committee assignments have come out at this point. Uh, what committees will we be serving on? Yeah, so I actually I got all the committees that I, I really wanted. Um, so I wanted housing, human services, and law and justice. And there just became an opportunity for me to now serve as the vice chair of law and justice. So as you can imagine, all of those issues are really interconnected. Um, I don't like thinking in silos. I think sometimes we limit sure. ourselves when we think in silos. So to me, it was like the perfect trifecta, um, especially as it relates to this community. What's your perception, I'm curious, of how the legislature has been handling and responding to things like thus far? So like obviously, such hasn't started yet. So like what is your perception of what you're walking into? Well, I'm really excited that, you know, at least I, what I understand from both chambers, but certainly in the Senate Democratic Caucus, and I think is at least uh, start reflected in the governor's budget, is that there really will be a push to address the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis that we're facing. Now, what that looks like, right, everybody can have sort of an idea of where we want to go, but how to get there is really where, you know, the details matter. So I'm paying close attention to what those details are um, and trying to figure out where to plug in. And again, with those three different committees, I think it's a really great perspective to think about all those, all those intersections. But um, I'm excited, at least with the messaging and having tracked the legislature since, you know, uh, when I first came on in 2015 and with all of the newer members and, you know, folks from more diverse backgrounds, um, I feel really lucky coming in at this time. There's still there are going to be a lot of hard conversations, um, even on this side of the aisle. There's no doubt about that. But at least what we're what we're saying as far as our values align with the things that I really want to see. Say more about those hard conversations, because something that I perceive is that, like, as the Republican Party becomes more and more uh, Trumpy, a lot of moderate Republicans are losing seats to Democrats. And so what you end up with is the ideological span on the Democrat Party is a bit more broad than it is on the Republican Party. And so, like, what are some of those hard conversations that you think you have to have? I mean, there are, there are some good folks in some hard districts. Um, you know, I think people I think I, I can say so what I've seen so far, I think those folks really want to push but again, there's that sensitivity about whether they keep their seat or whether they lose a seat. And so I think that pulls the conversation, right, in a more sort of moderate kind of way. Like, think, well, let's think about things more slowly. And me personally, like, I'm like, let's, let's go. Like, I, I bet we, we got to make, I mean, if we want, you know, bold solutions, we, we're going to have to take bold action, right? So I think for me, it's just figuring out. Um, one of the things that I've, I've, when people are like, well, what's your style? And it's like, well, we can call issues out and then try to call people in. Because I think, especially with some of those Dems in those swing districts, sometimes being called out um, on things that they feel like they can't do um, ends up just being an additional barrier that we don't need. It's like, okay, great. Well, how do we get there? How, how do we make this so that it's something you can do is really what I'm interested in talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, is there any particular legislation that you were excited about advancing that you've been seeing uh, in the lead up to the session? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things. I mean, high level, I think the things that I really want to focus on is addressing disproportionality, whether that race, racial and economic. I mean, again, the things are intertwined. It's kind of hard to like parse out uh, into individual things. I'm like, in my mind, they're all kind of part of the baked into the same pie. But sure. And then equitable access to democracy. So I'm going to be uh, dropping some bills. One of them is actually a bill that I'm going to be working on with the treasurer's office and Representative Stonier that looks at an investment pool for kids born on Medicaid. So it's essentially, it's, it's something that would allow them to, once they turn 18, have dollars. So like, if you think about the GET program, which tends to, you know, lean more to like middle and upper class folks that are able to start an account that their child can access for education. This would be something similar, but it's a pool instead of administrative individual accounts. Um, and it would allow for when that child turns 18, they could use it for housing, 
They could use it for um, education or they could use it to start a small business. And to me, I think it's going to be a conversation starter this year. It's, it's big. It's obviously going to have some fiscal impact. Um, but to me, I'm like, you want to talk about, you know, breaking, breaking apart the sort of cycle of um, poverty and thinking about building generational wealth. You got to have people on on solid footing, um, especially as they're coming out of being a youth, right, and entering into adulthood. And I've, I've the background that I come from, I mean, um, you know, we were all on state services. We grew up really poor and it was very hard. It was very hard um, to figure out how to navigate. And I think we ought to just make that a little easier. So that one's that I'm like really excited about, but it's going to take a lot. Um, and when we think about the the challenges that I'd mentioned earlier with with certain folks in certain districts, right, we're going to we're going to ask for, for money to invest in, in our low-income youth. So um, that one I'm really excited. I'm also working on uh, uh, access to donor breast milk, which seems kind of strange, like maybe to most folks that are not familiar with, you know, sort of having kids. And But right now we have some hospitals in more affluent areas that are providing donor breast milk coverage and those in less affluent areas that are not. And so babies are having to be on formula um, sooner and earlier. And so we know that that has a lot to do with like fetal health and long-term health of, a, of an individual. No no shade on, on formula. Formula's advanced and, and made a lot of opportunities. But if we have the ability to to do what other states are doing to, to help moms and babies. Um, I'm excited about that. And another one, which is kind of a small thing, but not, um, is requiring that landlords um, accept non-electronic forms of payment. So yeah. as we think of people with that needed low barrier access to housing, um, it was actually something that I experienced with my own mother trying to, you know, she doesn't read or write. She doesn't have access to email. Um, and so moving into an apartment complex that required everything to be done online, including payment, um, huge barriers for folks. So it's a little, it's a little issue technically, right? It's like three lines on a bill. Um, but I think it'll, it'll help to serve the, in the direction that we're wanting to go. And then I have other, other bills that are doing things as well. But I think those are like sort of touching on the issue areas that I want to branch off into. And then, um, yeah, Exciting. So I'm fascinated by the housing conversation. So the yeah. previous episode we had was with Will James talking about the Merkel Hotel, which was a hotel in downtown Tacoma that provided basically like below standard housing, but housing to people yeah. that basically was converted to Tacoma Flats, which are now like bougie, small micro hotels or micro hotel rooms. I, I, I just wonder like, from your point of view, when I look at housing, I see problems at the middle end, the high end. I hear my developer, like, well, I don't have developer friends, but well, actually I do have, anyway, whatever. I hear people <laughs> at all ends of the spectrum talking about the difficulty yep. of the housing situation, like whether they want to build housing, whether they're moving to housing. I, what is your take on what the housing situation is in Washington state? And what are some like lessons and policies that you are taking from elsewhere that you want to apply uh, this session and kind of going forward? Sure. Um, so I've, I have actually, I've only experienced, experienced housing instability and homelessness and having, mm -hmm. you know, family and grown up on, on housing assistance. So I come from that place of a really lived experience on housing issues. I don't have expertise in housing policy. Um, but frankly, I think expertise that should be honored is lived experience on these issues because sure. you can sort of talk about issues at a high level. But again, even thinking about how someone pays and has access to pay, you wouldn't really think about that, you know, about how, on the high level policy conversation, but for that individual, it makes a huge impact, right? And then that ripples out to every every other part of their um, world because shelter, I mean, what's interesting, we talk about housing and homelessness and we realize when we talk about food, water, shelter, 
We are not, we are not, we cannot be stable human beings without food, water, shelter. So the idea that like we, we've been behind, right? We've been behind for a while. And I think what we're seeing now, that's what's led to a crisis. So I think it's going to take multiple, you know, very creative solutions. I do think that it is in some ways working with developers as well. Um, there's a bill that I, I'm looking to drop around uh, rebates for construction materials. Because right now developers are in this space where materials like wood, are just, you know, they're outrageously expensive. So what's their incentive then to build, right? And what's their, and it, and it focuses on um, unused surface lots and unused parking lots, which a lot, a lot of unused land um, here in Tacoma. So I think things like that, which are more like, okay, how do we get developers um, incentive? And I, and I personally, I really believe in mixed income housing and areas. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, sort of building more projects, which really, um, you know, that I think some people are like, oh, just, just, just build, just build, just build. And I'm like, no, we need intentional building. We need to think about, you know, where, where we're building. And I think this is where it becomes, you know, that sort of tension between sometimes what feels like two Tacomas, uh, because a lot of folks will say, oh yeah, we need building, but we need it all to be in the South end. Right. Or, or we need it all on the, on the East side. And I think in their minds, they're thinking affordable housing, they're thinking low income housing, and that becomes a really dangerous conversation. Um, but me personally, I think what I benefited from as a kid is I was, I was low income. I was in a low income apartment place, but I also was in a mixed income neighborhood. Right. And so exposure to that, I think helped me in a way that a lot of people don't get. So I don't know if that directly answered your question, but I think we ought to be looking at all the layers and really everybody needs to be at the table and having that conversation. We can't, it's really not about demonizing anybody anymore. I don't care, demonizing developers, demonizing, you know, folks who are unhoused. It just, all of that is just, it's mucking up the conversation and we just have to be ready to go. Something you said caught my ear, and it's a term that I've heard a few times now, about two Tacomas. And so there are definitely at least two Tacomas. And there's like the part of town that gets heard on issues and the part of town that fundraises and politicians pay attention to. And then there's where the majority of folks live. Uh, I wonder what is your engagement strategy going to be with constituents given like the pandemic and given everything else, like everybody promises to do outreach to like marginalized communities, but like, what's your plan? I mean, so those are the communities that I come from. So it's, it's interesting to me because I think what I have to work on is actually reaching out to the, to the, you know, to the North Enders, right. And figuring out how sure. we have those conversations. I actually, for me, it's kind of the flip. I'm, I'm looking forward to door knocking on apartments. That's, that's where I feel comfortable. The house that I live in now is the first house I've ever lived in, right? So I had an, an, a unique opportunity to buy a home, um, change the trajectory of my, my family's life, frankly, to be able to do that. Um, so I am very much looking forward to engaging the folks that have not been his, like, you know, historically engaged or have been historically excluded. Um, I think where it becomes a little bit harder is to be able to tell folks like that haven't experienced change and haven't experienced instability it, it's okay to feel a little unstable as we find our footing together, right? So it, it's, that's, that's fine. That's, that's not a bad thing. Um, Cause I, it was interesting, you know, Anders Ibsen, um, who I've gotten to know and, and, and respect through this process, but he had posted something on Facebook recently um, around development, right? And why it's important to spread development across the city and folks, as you can imagine, we're reacting really strongly to that. And it was pretty obvious kind of which Tacoma, you know, the, yep. the comments were coming from. Um, but I think, you know, I posted a comment on there. I was like, oh, do I even, you know, is, it, is this really, do I, do I even want to engage? And what I said was, when you think about the Venn diagram of folks who I think are increasingly like, I think genuinely concerned, but newly 
concerned. I say new, you know, within the last decade or so, whereas other folks who have been living around and with housing instability for a long time, I was like, as opposed to as opposed to those folks, I was like the Venn diagram of those folks and the folks that don't want change are, are, are not almost not even a diagram. They're sort of the same circle. And so if we want, if, if you really want to do something to address, I think the real human component that they're feeling, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. So no, I got my work cut out for me. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. I, it's funny as you say, so I'm not on Facebook, but I can like, without even being there, I can like think about some of the civic actors who were probably in that post in exactly what they're saying. Like there is some of the very loudest voices live on the, on one side of an important street. And then like they get heard, they get heard, they get heard. And all their nimbyism is ceaseless. Um, something we talked about before we started recording that I want to bring the audience in on is, uh, and this may get toe steppy, but like, let's just, we, we do this, we do this in, in, in good faith. Um, we have a system in the state of Washington where basically the powers that local governments have are the powers that are devolved to them by the state government. Mm -hmm. What are some of the issues that you see policymakers in Tacoma and or Pierce County coming up short where you want to leverage the power of state government in order to like push policy changes? Sure. I mean, high level, I think the ability to have like to, to build partnerships um, I've noticed that sometimes there, again, there's a really siloed appeal. It's like, okay, well, hey, I'm the state legislator, right? And mm-hmm. these are the things I'm working on. And, you know, you get in a meeting and you're in the meeting with the city and there's like a, a tension that just seems to be, I, I don't understand what it is because I just come from a very collaborative, like, you know, I do better when you do better. Like, that's that's just how, <laughs> that's the place that I start from. I don't know, maybe yeah. some people call that naive, but it's led me um, to this point. So I'm going to stick with it. Um, so I think on a high level, the opportunity to partner and actually something came out of um, recent conversations that I had with council member Mello, um, who was like, Hey, cities are allowed to use uh, certain dollars for capital construction, right. Around behavioral health. And he's like, for some reason, counties aren't allowed to do that. And I was like, well, that's crazy. Why? And so it just turns out that when the statute went in for cities, they just didn't have parity for counties. And so mm-hmm. counties have had to be really creative in Pierce County in particular, right? As provides a lot of services, very, you know, frankly, under under-resourced comparatively to like our King County neighbors. And so I'm like, well, let's run a bill then to resolve that. Let's make sure for behavioral health, the county has the ability to build buildings because you can do operating, you can, you can, but again, without shelter, without places for people to go. Um, and so that that was one piece where I was like, kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, let's figure out how the state can enable counties to be able to have more flexibility with those behavioral health um, dollars. So that's that's just like one concrete thing that I've seen. But it turns out if you're just willing to kind of, you know, put your stuff aside and just have a conversation, like, what are you guys seeing? What are you guys doing? What do you need? We've already got a bill. So my, my hope is that we can do more of that and less like, yeah, just, just less um, territorial, I guess. Because it doesn't make any sense what the state does, what the city does, what the county does. The individual that's living with all in all of those jurisdictions is still going to be, you know, dealing with that. They're, they don't care about people's territory or. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, I think we'll take a break here. And we come back. What I want to do is I want to kind of unpack what has happened with recent uh, legislation involving law enforcement at the state level and mm-hmm. how that's kind of unfolding. And then I kind yes. of want to kind of run through a checklist of a couple of issues that uh, I think listeners are passionate about, about what you seem coming up in the term. So. We'll be back. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. 
Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling, and you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you wanna learn more, visit movetacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. We are a constellation of shows, uh, raising points of views and giving voice to things you won't hear elsewhere. Uh, this is an in-depth conversation with a state lawmaker about policies at the state level and the local level. Uh, I think this is worth supporting. And so if you believe in this work, I encourage you to go to channel253.com slash membership. A membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year. Uh, I opted for $4 a month, and I'm like, why? I could save money, but that's fine. Anyway, I believe in this project, and I, I, I support it, and I want you to as well. If you join as a member, you get access to our member-only podcast and our member-only Slack, and our member-only Slack is jumping right now. Uh, the most recent conversation was about t- changes in the 29th district and folks who are not running for election and folks who are stepping up. And so if you're like, what are you talking about? Join the Slack, and you'll know. All right. So, Yasmin, welcome back. Thank you, Nate. Something and I am a member of Channel 253. Yes. You, you know what? You? Okay. So so you should go on the Slack and just be like checking in and and, and, and watch and watch. Like, I think you Absolutely. and Melissa Santos are probably the most popular like local folks there. And so it'd be hilarious. Will do. Uh, last term, the legislature passed a series of reforms around law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And we frankly saw a wave of adult pouting. Uh, from local law enforcement agencies about the implementation of those reforms. And so I just wonder, what is your thoughts about the reform work that has been done thus far? And then also, what is your thought about the reform work to be done still from the state level? Sure. So I've been really, really intimately involved with these issues for a while. Just, you know, again, working as a working at the attorney general's office um, and specifically working on legislative affairs. So I believe we at the AG uh, supported all but one of the reform packages. Um, and, and I think one of them, it wasn't one of the ones that passed. I believe we supported everything that did pass. But there was another issue with the bill that didn't have anything to do with the intent of the bill. It just had to do with sort of the language and, and the way things would play out for state agencies. But um, And then obviously when they passed, there was a lot of like, oh my gosh, like we can't do this, we can't do that. And so people were seeking attorney general opinions uh, on a number of issues. So I was helping to field those. So, I mean, look, obviously I was like, these are important enough to bring to the attorney general and I think deserved and worthy of, of his support. Um, I think that they're necessary. Um, I think they were were important. I don't think that any 
package of reforms is going to be the end all be all. I think as far as like what things need to happen next, I think we watch as things play out, right? There will continue to be gaps. Um, there'll be continue to be things that need to be addressed because you, you, you just can't address all the issues through legislation, right? And certainly not through even 12 pieces of legislation. So I know there's going to be a couple of things that come up this year um, as far as like cleanup. I think there were a few things that were sort of legitimately like, hey, you just, you pass a giant reform, you don't word something right, people need clarity, you know, great. And I, and I also want to give a lot of deference to Representative Johnson. I do not want to get ahead of him on this because I know he's been sure. leading this work and frankly doing the Lord's work, not just on the reforms, but just everything since the reforms passed. Um, I have so much respect for him as a legislator and as a human being. But I think there's some places where he's like, well, okay, you know, that that makes some sense. We can get some some cleanup on the terms like military equipment. Um, you know, what is 50 caliber shotgun? You know, some places were like, well, we use those for beanbag, for non-lethal. Those are kind of like, okay. I think where, um, you know, some of the places that law enforcement really wants to push, I, I don't think that they'll be successful. Um, but it's around changing some of the standards. Right. So some of the things that we're hearing is like, OK, well, we can't we can't respond to this because we need probable cause um, as opposed to or excuse me. We would normally do it because it would be under the reasonable suspicion standard. So for folks that maybe aren't familiar, they're listening. That's a lower standard. Right. Reasonable suspicion is like almost anything. You can say someone said that this matches, matches the description of this person's outfit. And that could be reasonable suspicion, whereas probable cause is a higher standard. But I do believe that law enforcement very often is able to meet probable cause standards. And so I'm not sure that I that's a place where I'm like, I think it's okay to have a higher standard before you pursue somebody. Um, And I think when we're thinking about the interactions that really do lead to violence, um, we're talking about the, you know, shoplifting incidents. We're talking about, you know, maybe maybe a lot of theft, a lot of like these issues where all of a sudden especially with our human biases, right? Everybody is to come to them. You're like, oh, well, I see a description of this person. And immediately I'm like, hey, I'm going to stop, you know, that guy on the corner, right? And cuff them. And so I think there's just that balance of needing to meet a standard that is appropriate before you are, before you create a potential to harm any member of the community, any member of the community. Whereas when I was hearing things like, oh, if somebody, if there was a shooting, I can't, you know, pursue the person. No, no, no. That's, it, it, I just think that, that those things got really conflated. And I hope that the legislature and the conversations we're having will be able to provide clarity, even if they don't change policy, right? Because I do think that we, that the legislature moved in the right direction last year. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we stay in the right direction and maybe we can just figure out, hey, if law enforcement, if there, if there are legitimate reasons why law enforcement is not able to respond to something, we can be more creative than just lowering a standard that leads to more violence between law enforcement and community. We, we can do that. We can chew gum and log. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to drag along this point too much, but like my perception is, is that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the performance of law enforcement right now in the community. And it's not just like the Manny Ellis thing, but just like response times and police mm-hmm. saying they can't do anything about things. They're so not doing anything. Um, so I, I guess my wonder is, is that like, so you're saying part of the work ahead is making sure the things that were implemented are refined. Uh, what big picture work is still to be done around law enforcement? Like there's some things that like occur to me that I'd like to see. Like, I think that every police officer should have a license and I think that that life should be revocable, but like, that's not, you know, that's, that's my thought. Um, I think, 
I think law enforcement officers should be required to have malpractice insurance like doctors do. And then that like the when they violate people's rights that come out of their own pockets instead of like city coffers, those aren't things I'm proposing right now. But like I, I guess my question is is that like for, for from your point of view, what work is to be done this session besides cleaning up what happened last session? So, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit hard to tell what's going to be introduced yeah. this session. I think a lot of the issues that you talked about, like that you just mentioned, those are important things. I mean, the, the insurance pools, like I'll just stop there for a second, the way that insurance yeah. is determined. I think a lot of the confusion has actually become around the fact that it's like, oh, well, wait, if we're, if, if the insurance, uh, you know, I, if, I'm going to say this wrong, that the insurance adjusters, but the, um, the, I'll just say insurers, you know what I mean? The folks that actually assess risk, right? The underwriters. Like, oh, well, underwriters. There you go. Thank you, Nate. Um, you know, people that, and, and a lot of the city, uh, like council, like attorneys, right. Are, are thinking like about being really risk averse. Cause they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, potential to get into more, you know, more trouble. And then so they're more, thereby more payouts. But I think it's really interesting. And I don't, I don't know what the answer to this is, but when you look at local government payouts, right, they're significant. Um, they are yep. significant. Settlements are significant. So I really do think that to be able to look and turn that whole thing on its head and be like, what is this process and why does it operate this way? Um, I think that's an opportunity to really dig in. I think that's going to be a longer term conversation. I think there's a lot of folks like those, um, you know, the folks who are giving legal advice to, to local governments and those adjusters. Those are folks that have not been at the table, right? Those are, those are folks that have not been called in. And so I think at some point we really need to understand that whole system because I think cities are making decisions and local governments are making decisions based on settlement payouts, um, you know, which are high dollar amounts. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, if you were to, if you were to adjust for those things, think about all the dollars that could flow to provide additional services that would hopefully then reduce the need for law enforcement to show up at things. So that that's a conversation that I'm not, you know, I, I don't know where we start that or where we go, but I, I think we need to go there. All right. Uh, moving to two issues that are very, very important to me. Uh, Washington State's elections are probably the most uh well-constructed elections in the United States. And something that I was really struck by was reading the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and basically that like everything that that act wants to put into place already exists here in Washington state. Mm -hmm. That being said, there, there's still work to be done around elections. And so do you have any thoughts about any kind of legislation that you would introduce or support around elections? Yeah, so I've got two bills actually that I'm interested. One of them is around a local option um, for ranked choice voting. Um, I think ranked choice voting now, you know, Pierce County has had a, an interesting history with ranked choice voting a couple of a number of yes. years ago. Um, but I also think that, you know, things go awry with elections all the time. And frankly, if it, it's an option, right? So it says if a local government would like to adopt ranked choice voting, I think we need to provide resources and education so they can do it successfully. Because I think what you saw in Pierce County was a lack of resources and education, a lot of excitement about something new. And so I think those two things need to go hand in hand. I like the idea of giving, you know, getting people more excited about their vote counting, right? And getting younger people and, and more people of color, like, in that, in those voting spaces. And I think ranked choice voting has shown in other jurisdictions that it can actually do that. But I think we navigate that carefully here in Pierce County. And I'm really excited to have um, Senator Nobles as number two on that bill. So that's, that's one that, again, for the Pierce County delegation, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty bold move considering the history. Um, so proud to work with her on it. And then the other one is around um, the issue of prison gerrymandering. So allowing, mm. there were some adjustments um, that were done last year, but this sort of aligns those adjustments so that folks in, um, in prisons are able to vote in their original, 
right? Like where, where their hometown is. And so I think that's really important. And if you think about, you know, areas that get disproportionately impacted by, um, you know, folks getting sent to prison and, and, and whatnot, engaging in the criminal um, legal system, I think that's going to be a really important bill. Again, a really little one. It just says align, it aligns to RCWs, um, but could have a big impact. So, so those are the two things that I'm digging in on this session. And I'm really proud to have um, chair of the state government committee, um, Senator Sam Hunt, who's number two on the, the prison gerrymandering bill. So I think those, um, you know, we're starting off some good conversations, but I, but I am excited to dig in more on those issues. Those are just two little bills in a very short session. So <laughs> it's going to no, be interesting sure. to get all that done in 60 days. Well, and regarding the prison gerrymandering, if folks are listening or like, huh, what, huh? Uh, yeah. Most of the state prisons are located off in rural areas like Monroe, Walla Walla and Shelton, Washington. Uh, the people who are incarcerated there get counted in the census there. And so essentially those places get more uh, grant money, more representation than they would otherwise. And the people who are incarcerated are mainly black and brown. And so the black and brown people who are in low income people who are incarcerated basically create benefits for the folks who are incarcerating them in the front community. So like Monroe gets more representation than it would because of all the people that are incarcerated there. And so for folks listening. Yeah. Uh, the, Thank the you. Last yeah, no, no problem. The, the, the last issue I kind of want to touch on is uh, protections for undocumented brothers and sisters. And, yes. if, if, and if I may, for a moment, um, my experience going overseas and going through the immigration process uh, over to the Gulf has taught me a lot about systems and about how difficult it is to migrate and how people are treated when they arrive in places and so on and so on and so on. And I, I'm more empathetic than I think I've ever been at this point with our undocumented brothers and sisters. Like they are oftentimes fleeing really complicated life circumstances or violence or uh, a deprival of economic opportunity. Like nobody wants to leave their family behind and sneak across a border and establish a new life. Like nobody wants that. That said, when they do uh, come into our communities, they end up being positive contributors, even though society basically says F you to them collectively all the time. And so um, do you have any legislation in mind that you're going to either uh, propose or support around uh, making life in the legal system and state government more friendly to our undocumented uh, fellow Washingtonians? Yeah, so there's a bill, um, I believe uh, Rebecca Saldana is going to be from the 37th, so state Saldana's. Senator Saldana from the 37th is going to be sponsoring around um, providing an, an unemployment pool for undocumented folks, um, which they can't access now, right? So obviously they're 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 paying into services they can't access. Last year there was a big investment. I'm, I was pr really proud of the legislature um, in their work in doing that. That would have at least given one-time dollars, right? So it created a fund that you could access for folks for some COVID relief um, for undocumented folks. This one I think is going to be actually working on creating a structure for that. Um, which I'm excited about. I think it'll be probably a longer term conversation um, for a while to figure out cost and how big the pool is and all those details. But as far as I'm aware, there was a working group that um, a formal working group that's been working on recommendations that just came out a couple of weeks ago. And then that's what will go into the bill. So not, nothing that I've seen in bill language, but super supportive of the concept. And I don't know, you know, how much I think Doug had heard in the, the last uh, podcast that I did that Current with Channel 253 and, and Crossing Divisions with yeah. uh, with uh, Auntie Evelyn. I think I get to call her that now. Uh, <laughs> uh, about just sort of my family's history um, in immigrating to the United States and frankly, you know, wanting, having, having almost less than nothing, um, sort of being in that negative and, and making decisions to come where they thought, hey, no matter what happens, we'll find an opportunity, right? And I think 
knowing what that takes and having come from that, it's so deep for me. So before I even got into law school, before I ever thought about working in the legislature, um, I was interning for One America, which is a, an immigrant rights advocacy organization. That's how I got introduced to uh, Pramila Jayapal before she ran for office. And it was a it was actually a joint report done by Seattle University Law School and um, and One America around the human rights violations around the detention center. And so I just started to be like, wait a minute, there's just a lot to unpack here when it comes to immigration and realizing how much overlap is in my story. Not because, you know, it everybody's path is is their own, right? So, I mean, everybody's got a little bit of a, a unique path. But when we think about what, what motivates people to make, and I hate the word choice, I'll just have to tell you, even when I use the word choice, it's such, it's yeah. so loaded because I'm like, you, you don't know what you would do in a situation. I'd like to say I wouldn't murder you know, frankly, if someone came after my child, I don't know, right? I really don't know what the, the human in me would do um, in response. And so I have a deep empathy um, for, for folks that are willing to give up everything and are willing to take that chance and dream of an America that I think we haven't given them. Um, and and that's that's a failure. Um, that, that's just a failure. So I look forward to supporting as, you know, as much as I can for folks. Again, you do better, I do better. You can say whatever you want about someone's path uh, to come to this country. You can say whatever you want about the fact that they have papers or don't have papers, but they're living amongst us. There are community members. And if they're not safe and healthy, we're not safe and healthy, period. Preach, preach. Uh, you mentioned the Dissension Center. Uh, what is the current status of well, – what is the state of Washington's current stance on the NWDC and – so like we, I, I, we, we've heard that like it is supposed to close, da, 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 da. like what is the current status? Yeah. So I, I actually was hoping to do a refresher on this because I was tracking it more closely as, because, um, you know, the, the Solicitor General's office by way the Attorney General's office yeah. uh, defends legislation. So there was a, a bill um, banning private detention facilities that would have impacted the Northwest Detention Center. Um, that as recently, there was a challenge and I believe it did not, I want to say that it was the challenge to the California's bill in the ninth circuit that did not have a positive ruling. And so right now, I think it's kind of like a wait and see what happens to Washington, but the Washington bill is, you know, has a lot of similarities to what, what California had done on that front. So mm. I, yeah, I wish I had more. I, I should have actually, I was, it's on my, literally like on my list of things to do right here. Um, is I to love, held the list up. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Seriously, because I've been tracking it really closely um, to figure out, you know, and, and so I, I, I think the Northwest Detention Center is a stain and a shame on our community. Um, I actually, during the, the BCO process, I just happened to also be uh, uh, communicating with One America and we did a rally down at the detention center. Yeah. Um, so that's, but we'll, we'll see what the courts decide to do. And, you know, if it's not that tactic, then let's, let's think about other tactics. Like what, what do we, what do we need to do? Okay. So my hope I, I is we can get comprehensive immigration reform, but I've been fighting for that. Well, and, well, Democrats have a majority in both houses of Congress and uh, the, mm -hmm. the White House. And so lots of great legislation should be coming forward. I've, I have no doubt about that at all right now. No doubt. All right. Um, exit question here. One of the things that I've been hearing about repeatedly, and this argument is starting to, well, here. So, so part of it's a bullshit argument, but part of it has some grounding separation of powers. So 
Governor Inslee has been using a lot of emergency authority and it has the Republicans like up in hackles about his emergency authority. At the same time, like there is a desire, I feel like, from the legislative branch to be guarded and selfish of its power. And, in, and like in, in our system, the, the legislative branch should legislate. So I guess kind of a wonky question. Uh, do you have concerns about the governor's use of executive authority or well, let's start with that. Do you have concerns? I mean, I think when we when you're dealing in an unprecedented crisis the way that we are now, it's hard to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to criticize somebody for doing all the things that I mean, I just happen. My values align with his approach on the things that yeah. he's done. Right. Like vaccinations. And I think originally you know, I don't know who could do it perfect because there's no there's no playbook. There's no like, hey, this is how it's been done before. So I think drastic measures and drastic times. Um, you know, as far as the the legislature and the legislature's power, the thing about the legislature one is that it's it is really hard to get things accomplished, especially things that are big and and you know need to happen quickly. The legislature doesn't move quickly. It doesn't sure. meet regularly. Um, so I don't even know how with a part-time legislature you could really respond and react to COVID um, in the way that you would need to. So I think that his powers are necessary. Um, you know, I think sometimes, like, I don't know if if anybody has, if a lot of folks really know, like Trudy Inslee, who is sort of the 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 heart of the, of the Inslee yeah. unit, if you will. Um, sometimes I think maybe a little bit of her heart in the messaging wouldn't hurt. Uh, I think I think sometimes Governor Inslee's style, right? People are like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm listening. I disagree with what you're doing. And so then it seems like you're just telling me what to do. Um, I don't know how you solve for that. I mean, also you need sort of strong leadership in times where there's uncertainty. So n- no, again, I, it would be hard for me to say this is how I would do it because yeah, I, I really, I, I have to commend him that he's able, able to keep it together um, as well as he has through all of it. But yeah, I just don't know. I know I know the legislature's protective of it. I think with the Democratic majorities, I think there's been a been good support for the governor. But again, I just don't think the legislature's built um in a way that they could nimbly respond to COVID. I I don't know what we would do with that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I want to thank you for making time for this today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm really excited that you are going to be representing us. I told my mom today I was interviewing you and she's like, that's my senator. I'm like, yes, yes, mom, she is. She's mine too. And so thanks for making time for I love that. If people want to follow you online uh, and see kind of updates during session, where can they look? Yeah, sure. So my all of my official uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are up. You can just look up Senator Yasmin Trudeau um, straightforward, just my name, but every, everything went live, uh, about a week ago. So we'll start posting updates. I'm going to be dropping both of those voting bills that I told you about. Those will be dropped today and I'll be, um, putting posts up on my, on my Facebook. And then next week I'm looking to drop the housing, um, housing bills. And then the week after that, so kind of doing things in sort of chunks so that people can track like, Hey, here are the like issue areas. I think it's really confusing when legislators just, you know, people aren't able to track every single issue that way. So I'm also trying to be able to communicate it in a way that's that's helpful for folks to track and follow. So I hope people reach out to me, not just about the issues, yes, about the issues, but if I'm also messaging things in a way that makes sense, because um, I don't want it to be like all these wonky things that people are then like, okay. <laughs> another one, another wonky thing, I don't really understand how it impacts my life. So both of those things, I'm really interested in hearing from folks. So please follow me, reach out to me, at me, DM me. All the things. 
I, I just appreciate the passion and energy and the focus you're bringing to the legislature. And I just, I'm really excited about the future representation for our community. Like with you, with Senator Nobles, with the upcoming change in 29th, like it's a whole new day and I'm excited about it. Me too. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm excited and I'm excited to hear that your mom's excited about it. That actually one of the things that, no, seriously, I mean, one of the things that, that, that motivated me to finally take the leap was my mom being excited about it. There's something very special when our moms get excited because our moms have been through, you know, history and things and to excite them about anything like, especially new changes in leadership. It's just, it really warms my heart. So please tell her I said, hi, we'll do it. We'll do. We'll count for y'all. Make sure that you get a booster if you can and convict the police to kill Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. This is so fun, you guys. I love it. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.